0: Now, when I was in high school, I loved Young Life. Has any ever, anybody else ever been connected through Young Life or kids or grandkids? I loved Young Life. See, I went to, to church both hours on Sunday morning, both big church and Bible study. I would get a donut and lemonade in between if I was good. I'd say that happened about half the time. Then there was Youth Group on Wednesday nights and then Young Life on Monday night, which was like Youth Group, but it was even more wild and crazy. Um, It wasn't at church. We met at some guy's pool house next to the country club golf course. It was a slightly different neighborhood than where I grew up. One night, I'll never forget, we played the game Bigger or Better. Has anyone ever played this game before? This is a classic Youth Group game. No? Okay, I'm going to tell you how it goes. This is how it goes. Um, First, you divide up the big group into two or three different teams, okay? And each team gets some small, insignificant object with which to start the game, like a a paperclip or something like that. Then each team runs from house to house around a given neighborhood trying to trade that thing for something bigger and better, right? And on it goes, house to house, until... Before time runs out, whoever returns with the biggest and the best thing wins the game. Get it? Okay. So, this section over here is going to be team one, (laughs) elect a captain and I'll give you your paperclip. No? No? Not doing that this morning. Okay. Now, on that night, uh, 25 years ago at Young Life, the first house we went to, we traded our paperclip for like a ruler or something um, because the people got stuck on the office supply theme. The next house traded us that ruler for a can of baked beans, which we weren't really sure was much bigger or better. (laughs) But like, what are you going to do? You can't argue, you know? They were like, yeah, I love a ruler. Um, Now, a couple houses later, we were banging on the door of some poor guy just trying to watch Monday Night Football. (laughs) And what's worse, right, than being badgered by a bunch of annoying high schoolers trying to trade you for something bigger and better than a pair of your neighbor's old running shoes? But at one point he paused and he said, well, if you're trading something bigger and better, how do you win the game? And we said, well, the biggest and the best thing wins. And remember, this was a neighborhood that knew a little something about bigger or better, right? This was the neighborhood to be, to be a part of. This was the neighborhood to play bigger or better in. And so he's trying to get rid of us as quickly as possible and to keep us from continuing to run around and wreak havoc. He's trying to get back to the game before the commercial break is over. And so he asked, and I quote, What about my car? (laughs) True story, we traded him his neighbor's old pair of Nikes for the keys to his much bigger, much better high-end SUV, which we drove back to the house and won the game. (laughs) It was a landslide in his Land Rover, let me tell you. Sadly, just you know, so we're on the same page, we did have to return it at the end of the night, but I think of that young that night at Young Life as we turn to the scriptures this morning. I think of that game bigger and better. And maybe you've never heard about that game before. But think about our lives. How often do we play that game even now? How often are our lives consumed with searching for something bigger and better? We've spent this summer in the Psalms, engaging and exploring the prayer book of the church, the hymnal of all those who have gone before us. We've been reminded of the power and the passion within these ancient poems. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I really think we should make some of these into songs, don't you? (laughs) We're really missing an opportunity there. Guys, get on it, man. Now, this morning, um, we conclude our series in the Psalms with one of the most well-known and and most beloved of all. It's one of the the best-known and most beloved, not only for its lovely language, which it has, but even more so for its rich and its robust theology um, that reveals the nature and the attributes of God. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into Psalm 139. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for gathering us here in the name of Jesus and by the presence and power of your spirit. And we ask That you would open our eyes and our ears. That you would soften our hearts to your word which is among us. That living word of Jesus. The written word, your holy scriptures. And now the preached word. Would the words you've spoken to me now flow through me to your gathered people? And would these not merely be words that we hear, but words that equip us and empower us, that challenge us and change us to be and even more so become your people, inviting everyone to life in your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear these words from Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty to attain. These opening verses describe the omniscience of God. Uh, Omniscience is what J. Vernon McGee once referred to as a four cylinder word. That was a long time ago, though. Maybe now he'd think of it as a Hemi V8. It means simply uh, that God is all-knowing. Omni, meaning all, and, and, and science as a, as a referent to, to knowledge. All-knowing. God knows when we sit and when we rise, when we go out and when we lie down. Before a word is on our tongue, God knows it completely. Which can be really scary for me. You know this. I'm not even sure what I think until I start talking and yet God does. God knows those words on our tongue before we even say them. But to quote Dr. Seuss's cat in the hat, that is not all, no, that is not all. There is more four-cylinder words in Psalm 139. King David continues, not only thinking of omniscience, God's all-knowingness, but God's omnipresence. At first that sounds like a really epic Christmas, doesn't it? Omnipresence or a really good birthday gifts. Slightly different presence there. Those who laughed at that one had the, uh, the five love language of giving gifts. You're like, ooh, omnipresence, that sounds great. But bring the two together, God's omniscience, all-knowing, and God's omnipresence. You could describe it this way, that God knows us because God is with us. God knows us because God's with us. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. All those opposites are called merisms. Let me hear you say merism. Merism, merism. So you've got heavens and depths. You've got darkness and light. You've got um, the wings of the dawn and the far side of the sea. In the Hebrew, um, those phrases can also be translated as the east, right, where we see the dawn, and the west, uh, where the sun sets over the ocean. Just for the ancient Hebrews, just like it is for us in Southern California. From the east the east. To the west. These are merisms. Uh, They're opposites that are meant to include everything in between. So when we hear about the heavens and the depths, the light and the darkness, the east and the west, what's supposed to happen in our mind is the understanding that everything in between is included throughout all the different dimensions. Does that make sense? It's like um, some mornings when I wake up and, and my wife, Cassie, is in the kitchen and she asks me, what were you doing in the kitchen in the middle of the night last night? And I tell her, oh, it was just a little something from the fridge, a little ice cream from the freezer. Cassie knows that's a merism. She knows that those are two opposites, but the assumption is that I have raided every cupboard in the kitchen in the middle of the night, Right? These are opposites, but the stand-in is that I just went through all of it. And the readers of Psalm 139 would see these opposites as clear instruction that God is not merely here or there. How often we look through the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Scriptures, and we think that they had this silly understanding of God being in a particular place at a particular time, but nowhere else. But no, that's not true. You see, they understood God's not merely here or there. God is not only omniscient, all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He is always with us. God knows us because God is with us. And how important that is for us to know, especially now um, when we know so much about healthy, and secure relationships that help us thrive. Both psychologists and psychiatrists, even neurologists, now discuss what's called attachment theory. Has anyone heard that phrase, attachment theory, before? Essentially, it goes like this. They say the earliest relationships that we have in the earliest days of our lives The first weeks and months of our life, even as a tiny little baby, set the stage for everything else that will follow for the rest of our 70, 80, or 90 years. And if we are able to make secure attachments, even as a tiny little baby, then we will know that there are people who are with us and who are for us. There was once an experiment in 1975 at, uh, at UMass, Um, And the experiment was trying to understand the nature of attachment, even for tiny little babies. Maybe you've heard about this. It's called the still face experiment. And they took a little baby, a, a few months old, and its mother, with whom the baby was securely attached. They looked at each other all day, all the time, making faces, talking, smiling, giggling. And there's video of it. If you want to check out on YouTube later, where they have the woman set her baby down, and then instead of a smile on her face, the mom just goes still face. And the baby does everything it can to get mom's attention. It smiles, Ma, it plays a little peekaboo, it moves around a little bit, and, and mom just, no movement on her face. And as you might imagine, baby grows very agitated, even scared, What has happened to mom? Why is mom not acting the way mom normally acts with a smile on her face? Why does mom not mirror the faces that I'm making, do the things that I'm doing? It tells us a great deal about what that little baby experiences and and how important it is to create those secure attachments. See, Psalm 139 is trying to tell us God not only knows us, God is with us. God's face has been turned toward us. How good that is to know how good that is to know that we can be securely attached not only to our parents, not only to our spouses, not only to our friends, but to the one who makes us in his own image. There's one more attribute of God, one more four cylinder word in verses 13 through 16. The God's not only omniscient, the God's not only om- omnipresent, the God is omnipotent, the God is all powerful. And for the ancient Hebrews, the idea of God's power was seen no more clearly than in creation. For us, in 21st century America, if we talk about power, we might think about the ability to cause great destruction, right? If I said, tell me about the movies that you've seen that depict power, you're thinking about the particular kind of movie where there's massive explosions, yes? yet the ancient Hebrews saw the opposite. They saw the greatest power in the ability to create And that's where God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and God's omnipotence come together. All three. That God is with us and God knows us because God made us. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. It's as if David falls asleep one night trying to wrap his head around these attributes of God. How can God be all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful? And he wakes up the next day with the realization and the recognition of his own finitude about how big God is and how small he is. David marvels at God's majesty, that God is all-knowing, that God is all-powerful, that God is always present, that God is bigger and better than we can ever imagine. Think back to that night at Young Life, um, and and, and think about whether this describes your own life in some way. How often do we spend our lives running from here to there, kind of like high schoolers wreaking havoc throughout a neighborhood? How often do we spend our lives searching for something bigger and better? Scripture tells us that we will keep on looking, that we will keep on longing, just like David, until we're weary and worn out, until we come to see God for who he really is, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And the scriptures also tell us that God is not like that guy we interrupted watching Monday Night Football who'd give us his car to get rid of us. How often bad theology insinuates that that's why God gave us Jesus. This is a God not who is frustrated with us and wants to get back to the TV before the commercial break. This is a God who has actually come looking for us. Eugene Peterson once put it this way. He's commenting on uh, Psalm 139. He said, Any true life of the Spirit must be narrated as a story Of God's search for humankind, not humankind's search for God. God makes the first move. He understands our being and is conversant with our most personal inner life. God's seeking removes all the panic from faith and all the anxiety from hope. All our works can be response and all our words can be praise. Ah, I love that. How tragic if we come to believe that we have found God rather than him finding us. If it's a God that we can find, that cannot be a God of the omnis. That cannot be a God of the four-cylinder words, all-powerful, always present, all-knowing. How tragic if we come to believe in a God who embodies maybe one of these attributes or two rather than all three, it would not only be tragic, it would be terrible. Think about it. If God is only watching over us, but he's a long way away and he doesn't engage his power in our life, doesn't that sound kind of like Big Brother in George Orwell's 1984, right? God is Big Brother always just watching us? Or one author puts it this way. It sounds like uh, then God would just be a creepy Santa Claus who knows when we've been bad or good. That doesn't sound like a God worthy of worship, does it? Think about if God is only a God who hems us in behind and before. That doesn't sound like safety. That doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like bondage. That sounds like slavery. How tragic and how terrible were God to be all-knowing and all-present, but then powerless to create, powerless to transform us, powerless to bring about new life out of death. Or what if God were always present and all-powerful, but he was without knowledge of what's best for his people? Perhaps the worst is if God were all-knowing and God were all-powerful, but God were not present with us. These are the gods of the ancient Greeks, aren't they? The gods who are all-knowing and all-powerful, but not present. And if any of those three are missing, then that is no God at all. And yet I fear that that's the God many have rejected. I want to say something to those of us here in this room or those of us joining in online, anyone who wouldn't yet consider yourself a Christian. um, I want to apologize. I want to say I'm sorry because I, I have this sense that the God you've heard about from your Christian friends is not the God of omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. I fear that you've heard about a God who is less than the God revealed in the scriptures. If you've heard of a God that can be completely contained or explained, then that's not the God of the Bible. Amen? Amen. If there's a God who's completely contained in one system of thought, or one theological sort of grouping, or some simple way of explanation, then that's not God, and if those of you who wouldn't yet consider yourself a Christian have heard about that kind of God. I, I want you to know that I don't believe in that kind of God either. Scripture narrates this story of God's search for humankind, not humankind's search for God. And if we're searching for God and, and we think we've found him, if we can explain him, watch out. We might have missed a detail or two. I can't remember if our game of bigger and better tied into a lesson that night at Young Life, but I am certain... That those of us there would have agreed with these omnis, these attributes of God. But if I went back and I surveyed all of those who were in that room and what they believe today, I wonder for how many of us that faith has remained in a God who was always bigger and always better than our wildest imaginations. Or I wonder whether, as everyone grew bigger, their view of God got smaller. As we learn more, do we assume that God knows less? As we get stronger, does God get weaker? Think about those high schoolers in that room. Does an invitation to some place we shouldn't go, to do something we shouldn't do, prompt the possibility that God isn't really watching, he doesn't really know? Does an experience of suffering and loss lead to the thought that God wasn't really present with us at all? Does the injustice of our wicked world insinuate that idea that God can't really hold the power to make things right? Do you see how integral these three omnis are for faith in the true God revealed in the scriptures? And how easy it is to have a slightly lesser faith in a God who is always bigger and always better and how how that will send us off the path so quickly. And now more than ever, in the chaos and the confusion of our culture, God, if there is such a being, has been made minuscule. God has been pushed to the margins. As we have gotten bigger and we have understood the world better, God has gotten smaller and less significant. Friends, the only way to push back on that cultural narrative is to believe the bold proclamation of this poignant little poem to hold high the truth of these three attributes of God. That He sees what you're going through, He knows, He does. That He is with you by the power of His Spirit, and that He is at work bringing new life out of the old. Maybe we could put it this way, in, in, the, in the language of attachment theory, that God has turned his face toward us, that God smiles when we smile, that God weeps when we weep, that God is there, that God is present, that God is powerful. The world will tell us that that's not true, and the scriptures beg to differ. You see, it's only the promise of Psalm 139 that allows David to be open and honest and authentic. And if I had to wrap up our whole summer in the Psalms with three words, those would be the ones I would choose. The Psalms invite us into a faith that is open, that's honest, that's authentic. Like any good sermon, Psalm 39 concludes with application. David does three things in the application of Psalm 139. He prays. He obeys and he submits. Hear these words. They might be a little surprising. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. <laughs> Whoa, where did that come from, right? And yet, David is open, he's honest, he's authentic. He knows a God who, who, who knows him, who sees him, who is with him, and so he prays what he really feels. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you. God, they speak of you with evil intent. Has anybody ever felt that in our world today, that someone speaks of God with evil intent? Your adversaries misuse your name. How often do you hear someone misusing God's name? Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Did you notice that? Psalm 139 ends where Psalm 139 begins. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Is there anything offensive within me? Test me and know my thoughts. It ends where it began, with the invitation for God to search us and to know us, to turn his face toward us, to challenge us, to change us, and to lead us forward. The Christian scriptures comment, in a way, on Psalm 139. Because King David sees himself as being the really righteous one who looks at all the evildoers, the bloodthirsty men, and, and he's the one who's got it figured out. The New Testament will say that we were all enemies of God, and yet Christ Jesus, who has come to be with us, gave his life that we might be friends, that we might be members of God's family. And so this morning, we gather together at this table, and we gather together with tiny little pieces of bread and, and insignificant little cups It's not unlike the sort of insignificant little thing like we start with when we play the game bigger and better. But may we be reminded at this table that what seems insignificant, this little piece of bread, what seems insignificant, this tiny little cup, are representatives of the God who is all-knowing, who is always present, and who is all-powerful, who has come to be with us to open our eyes to the good news of those omnis. May these tiny little insignificant objects be not received as such, but as a reminder of how big and how much better God is than anything we could search after in this world. We heard it earlier when we were assured of our forgiveness after the prayer of confession. Brian reminded us that as we confess our sins, God takes us our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west. And remember, remember, that's a merism, right? From the wings of the dawn to the far side of the sea. Because of this Jesus, who has come to reconcile us to God, he has removed all of that impurity, all of that unrighteousness from the east is to the west and everything in between.